Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Scott Roche's Omniverse. This week we have for you Tell Me Why, read by Dave Robeson. And when I say read, um, I really mean acted, because Dave has a history in the theater, and it really does show. He also has a history of with audio production, and that really shows as well. Uh, you know, it's like last week with the reading by James Keeling of Bitter Release. The, he, these guys are really, really bringing their A-game, and I, I appreciate it so much. So uh, uh, as my way of, of thanking him for this, uh, please go check out the Roundtable podcast. Not just because he does an awesome job on this reading, but also because it's a great podcast. I've listened to it myself, and it's uh, it's only recently started, but uh, he is talking to some of the, the readers in my circle of friends and podcasters that have some incredible talent, and they're helping new writers uh, with uh, getting their works polished up, and, and uh, so just go check it out. I also want to let you know that... Um, continuing 52 weeks of indie so go check that out at 52.scottroche.com and uh just want to thank you for listening to the podcast if you enjoy what you hear make sure to check the show notes for links to where you can buy these in text format uh and even if you can't spring for buying it go ahead and review either the podcast or the ebook based on the podcast if you would be so kind Stick around to the end of the podcast for this week's promo, and we will see you next week. This is Dave Robison, co-host of the Roundtable Podcast, and you're listening to Tell Me Why by Scott Roche. First Sergeant Young! Captain Ponzi's voice wasn't the bark of a D.I., but it did carry weight. Present, sir! The recruit's shout echoed through the crisp ocean air. Jung practically felt the intense scrutiny his CO measured him with. The two men had built a bond over the course of months. It wasn't one of love, or even respect as much as pure trust. Battle did that, if nothing else. Report to the command tent in fifteen minutes. Affirmative, sir. Jung turned to his line of troops and watched them finish the last round of calisthenics. Platoon! Attention! The soldiers snapped into their lines. Break into your fire teams and hit the rotation. I want to see asses and elbows. Now! As the men headed for the live fire obstacle course, he thought of the reasons Ponzi would be calling him to the tent. It wasn't unusual for it to happen. He usually just waited until a freer time of day to do it. Shrugging to himself, Jung straightened his urban camo fatigue jacket and made sure his patrol cap sat snugly. You didn't go see the boss without looking your best. Ten minutes later, he stood in front of the tent. It was a more permanent structure than the name implied. Made of titanium alloy supports and the latest ballistic-resistant fibers, it was sturdy and could easily hold its complement of 15 support personnel. In an emergency evac, it could be broken down in two minutes by a team of four. The slit doorway parted under his gentle hand pressure, and he strode down the center aisle, flanked by soldiers at desks. The captain's was the last in the left column. His hand snapped to the brim of his cap, and he waited for the return salute. At ease, Sergeant. Have a seat. A private office was a luxury, unavailable in the field. He picked up the report on his desk, 
and pretended to scan it. Your last medical eval was a week ago? Yes, sir. Ponzi put the report down. I've got some bad news. I'm afraid you have the pox. Yes, sir. I had a feeling that would be the case. He'd begun feeling run down in the morning and noticed numbness and tingling in his fingertips. The symptoms could have been anything until he saw a black dot on the base of his right heel. The dot was the first clear sign the disease had taken hold. The dots would spread rapidly over your body and break into pustules after a few days. By the end, a week to ten days at most, you would be free from pain as the pain receptors shut down completely, but you would have infected who knows how many hundreds. It was like some bastard combination of leprosy and the Black Plague, cooked up, some said, by a government lab, which government didn't really matter at this point. However the pox started, all that mattered now was it had wiped out 60% of the Earth's population two decades ago. A recently developed serum meant that it no longer had to be contagious, but it was still a death sentence. In fact, treatments could let you live as long as a month, depending on how strong you were. Captain Ponzi leaned forward. You know what this means, don't you, Jung? He was a little annoyed by the lieutenant's concerned parent facade and a touch insulted by the question. Reassignment to the field, sir. In his mind, there was no sense in getting angry with the disease. These days it only popped up in about one out of every thousand people. The warmth of anger in his belly came not from that, but from the idea of spending his last days knee-deep in muck, fighting a battle he decided could never be won. Jung had been in the field infantry since he was pressed into service three years ago. Even though he was a bit out of his prime, population shortage being what it was, they didn't care. He'd done well and advanced to the rank of first sergeant. Training other young men to die wouldn't have been his first choice, but it was better than the alternative. The older man leaned back in his chair. Well, you're taking this well, Jung. Damn well. Yes, we'll be sending you to the front lines. And you'll get the honor of an increase in rank. The covert ops we'll send you on will be of great service to our country. He smiled. Naturally, this will also mean any survivors you have will be receiving an officer's death benefits. Jung stood and saluted. It kept him from breaking the officer's jaw. The smugness of his smile and the fact that he should know Jung had no surviving family, at least none the government would recognize, nearly pushed him over. Thank you, sir. It will be an honor. Ponzi stood and returned the salute. Excellent. He looked a bit uncertain, as though he saw the coils of anger squirming in Jung's brain. Report to me in 48 hours. That will give you time to get the treatments, and then you'll be shipped out. Jung marched out of the command tent, head held high. He would have slammed a door, but their tents didn't come so equipped. Be damned if I'll die on someone else's terms, he muttered. When he scraped the last of the battlefield muck from his boots to become a drill instructor, he promised himself that he would die when he was good and ready. Going back to the front lines wasn't in the cards. The treatments would put him out of commission for a day and a half at least, so if he was to go AWOL, then it would have to be before then. He knew exactly where he wanted to go and even knew the best way to get there, but he'd need to learn a little about the security and layout of his destination. Getting the information would probably cost him a great deal, in light of his latest news, though, savings had become meaningless. None of it mattered, really, if he couldn't get out. 
Escaping would be difficult, because security would know he now had no official reason to go off base. But it was by no means impossible. Training on infiltrating enemy bases could easily be turned on its head. His bunkmate, SFC Reese, was on leave, so he had the place to himself. He stalked the 12 by 12 enclosure and thought about the best way to handle things as afternoon crept into night. By the time taps had blown, he had his kit ready. It didn't amount to much. His rifle wouldn't work if he was off base. Security protocols disabled all weapons once they passed the outer perimeter. His only useful weapon was an 8-inch long ceramic and titanium battle knife that rode on his hip. Basic rations and a sleeping bag weighed down the base of his backpack. He filled a reservoir in the upper part of his rig with water infused with vitamins and chemicals designed to keep a soldier going for days without stopping. Sleep would be out of the question while he was on the run. He packed 50 meters of ultralight monofilament climbing rope and a second skin parka sat on top of everything. Those would be vital if he had to pass through the mountains on foot. He stripped his clothes of all insignia and carried no identity chit other than the one branded on his back. Once free of the base, no one should view him as anything more than a well-groomed drifter, and a day or two on the road would take care of that. Lights out came after an interminable fifteen minutes. He slipped out of his tent and made his way toward the back of the camp. There was a chill in the air, and a salty tang he would miss. This part of the southwest quadrant was beautiful in the fall. He shut down the aesthetic part of his brain with sheer will. Now was not the time to dwell on death and change. The south side was the least likely to be patrolled heavily, as they relied on a natural cliff face, dropping twenty meters to a river for a boundary. No physical fence surrounded the camp, only roving guard patrols. If he was spotted at all, he would be brought in and likely terminated after a brief interrogation. As he crept towards the perimeter, a shadow was the only indication he passed by tents filled with sleeping soldiers. He would miss his babes, but he knew every one of them would kill him if they had to, and the brass would have no problems finding another veteran to fill his boots. The cliff's edge was only a half-dozen meters away when he heard something scraping on stone. An eye-blink later, he was flattened to the ground against the base of the mess tent. Filtered moonlight cast a shadow barely big enough for him to squeeze into. Two shapes moved down the avenue that made its way around the base. His left hand rested on the knife's butt, ready to draw it. Sweat began to form under his arms at the thought of having to bring down one of his own. He would do it, make no mistake, but it would hurt. They came and went without incident. He didn't envy them, but allowed himself a flicker of a smile knowing the ass-chewing they would get tomorrow. It would have been delivered by him any other time, and he would have relished it. He leopard-crawled the remaining distance and peered over the edge to see the gunmetal ribbon of water below. The next day saw him in an outpost town a hundred miles from base. He had been fortunate enough to sneak on board a grain hauler bound east for the population centers. He went into a free store and picked up a change of clothes. Nothing fancy, just something to make him a little less conspicuous. Even though things were supposedly prosperous everywhere, he could now pass for the street trash that lurked at even this society's fringe. A news scanner gave him the latest battle statistics, food production reports, and birth rates 
as of this 230th day of the year 2036. The report, and a warm cup of coffee, gave him the moment's rest he needed after a hard night. Once his head felt clear of what passed for sleep, he decided it was time to make a quick call. The terminal in front of him lit up, and he set it for audio only. A few seconds later, just as he was about to give up hope, an old familiar voice answered. Make it good. Jackson. Jackson, it's me. Me? Me who? After a heartbeat, recognition must have kicked in. Damn, son. What have you been up to? Been too long. Yeah. Yeah, it has. Look, bro, I can't talk long. I need you to leave a few things for me in a lockup downtown. Can you do that for me? Jackson paused for several heartbeats. It's been a long time. But not too long for me to remember what you've done for me. Whatever you need. He outlined what he wanted, and, to Jackson's credit, the man never flinched. After another minute of intense conversation, he disconnected. Walking was something he was certainly no stranger to. He hoped he could catch a ride with another long hauler. They were automated, and as long as he didn't try to steal any of the cargo, they didn't bother to look for any unwanted passengers. Getting on one was easy, but staying on was dangerous, considering they rarely stopped completely and went well over 120 clicks per once they got going. The only other option was finding someone willing to pick up a complete stranger, and anyone traveling out in this part of the world was rarely up to any good. It wasn't strictly speaking against the law, but it was discouraged. Everyone was taught to conserve for the war effort, though these days most people knew what a joke that was. Resources weren't lacking as much as they tried to make you believe. For now, anyway, it looked like the steady pace of a soldier would have to get him where he wanted to go. Jung scrambled across the broken concrete, trying his best to avoid the slicing white beams that scanned the DMZ. If he was caught trying to break in, the electroshock punishment would only be the beginning. His gray puffer coat and worn jeans the color of ready charcoal offered some concealment from prying eyes, but they weren't the only things that stood in the way of his prize. He managed to make it to a crash barrier and used it for concealment to catch his breath. The last two days spent walking, running, and skulking in the shadows had taken their toll. About a hundred meters left before the moat and fence, and once on the other side he would be home free. A swig from his camelback sated the edge of his thirst. In college he would have been able to clear a hundred meters in just under a dozen seconds. His speed had been good enough to make him a valued running back for his university team. Flashes of cheering crowds as they brought home trophies filled his head. He had a beautiful girlfriend. Sarai was on the school dance squad. Her body was sculpted by years of training, and what he admired most, her mind, was just as hard and sharp. When she laughed and cheered him on, he felt as if he could face the biggest linebacker head-on. A violent headshake snapped him out of the happy memories. Hunger raged at him. Pain crawled through his limbs. All of the good things in life had been taken from him and from humans everywhere with the first step of criminalization. Focusing his anger into energy, he pressed on. Trembling calf muscles edged him up so he could peer over the concrete lip. Perfect timing was necessary. The speed which buoyed him to the end zone would need to materialize for one last performance. 
Syllables breathed out the numbers, and once he was satisfied with the timing, he came around one end and sprinted. A ghostly voice shouted, Move, you maggot! My sister runs faster than your pansy ass! Once the beams had moved past, he fixed his eyes on the moat. That became his end zone. Get there, and he would deal with the fence. By then, all pretense of secrecy would have to be blown away. Though his feet only whispered on the unyielding surface, they thudded like cannon shot through his brain. Nerves fired and pictures flashed through his brain from the past, his coach egging him on, his beloved beckoning to him from their marriage bed, the first man he'd killed, the children they would never have, waving him to the finish line. A line of white flashed his way, and he juked without even thinking about it. The sharp smell of ozone singed his nose hairs and perked his brain. The beam must have missed him by scant millimeters. No eyes, human or electric, watched his approach. Those looked from the outside in. Few would be stupid enough to try and break in, and fewer still would be able to evade the beams. They were more worried about their precious livestock getting out. The fence was only steps away. His right arm flew under the jacket and freed the metal orb imprisoned there. He pointed it at the fence and depressed the recessed trigger. An onslaught of focused photons reduced the metal fence to slag, and he leapt over the canal and through the hole, tucking and coming up in a smooth motion that his body remembered from years of military training. A muscle in his thigh screamed at the abuse he had been doling out like candy. Shrill alarms began their assault on his ears. Halt, intruder. The mechanical demon's voice was almost human in its inflection. Security has been alerted, and you will be detained or destroyed. He called up the map he spent a few days memorizing. It shouldn't be too hard to find her, given the grid-like layout of the streets. He also knew security would be long in coming, or at least long enough. They weren't used to break-ins like this. He crushed the beamer in one hand until he felt it crack along the appropriate stress lines. It flew through the air and smashed a window. Ten steps later, light filled the air behind him, and a concussion wave nearly picked him up. As it was, it succeeded in helping him along. A nice little diversion thanks to Smithy, who had also provided the map. Now he was weaponless, but it would take more than anything he could have had to overcome the drones. The last corner came in sight, and he saw light, pale and gold, coming from the building's yard. He slowed and turned onto the street. They looked so much like houses. He supposed it wouldn't be a terrible life, and was always assured they didn't mind it at all. But the price was too high for him, and he hoped for her. There they stood like angels. A half-dozen of them in plain white gowns stood gawking at the pillar of fire his surprise had created, so much so they didn't even notice him. They were all about the same age, and were each beautiful in their own ways. Diet and exercise made them all as near physical perfection as was possible, given the available technology. No trace of the pox was anywhere on them that he could see. Of course, the government docks would make sure they were clean. All of the women were at the same stage in their pregnancy, and it was easy for them to be impregnated with at least four babies apiece. By the time he reached them, he saw the fear in most of their eyes. He was quite a sight. The distance he had come and the road he had traveled had taken their toll, and the pox had started to take hold. Seeing her face again made it all worth it. There she stood, ten years older, but no less beautiful.
He went straight to her. Her eyes filled as she opened her arms. They embraced, and he called her name over and over. Their combined tears washed his face as clean as it could be. Their marriage, dissolved after the disaster out of necessity for the continuance of the human race, had never been over in either of their minds. Not time, distance, nor any man's law could ever kill what they had. Even though to them she was no more than a machine to give them the numbers they needed to win the war, to him she would never stop being the girl he had fallen for, cheering him from the sidelines. He broke their clinch, though it went against every desire he had. He drank her in with his eyes. Hers went over his shoulders. He knew before he felt the tingle that they were behind him. The drones sent their beams lashing into his body and brought him down. Convulsions racked his body. He tried to proclaim that which the state had tried to take from them one last time before his heart stopped. But he couldn't. She read it in his eyes and in his effort and held the memory close, never forgetting. One security drone came up to his supine form and scanned the code at the base of his spine. Warrior 63ZZ9 Mark 20, deceased. Executed for unlawful entry into Incubation Zone 12 and for dereliction of duty. The sled came by and carried his body to the immolation chamber. Unit 326, inspect all receptacles for signs of infection. As Sarai and the others were led to the med unit for decontamination, she carried the image of her war-ravaged husband in her head, promising him these children she carried would not suffer his fate. Wake up. Go to work. Work. Come home. Eat dinner. Rot your brain out. Go to bed. Lather. Rinse. Repeat. Are you tired of an old humdrum life? Tired of things that just weigh you down and depress you? Wouldn't you rather just focus on things that are awesome? Tune into Nutty Bites. Find out what's awesome. Nutty Bites. Nimlas.org slash blog.